Man, I'm having so much fun. This is a $1.6 trillion industry. I'm talking about the food and beverage space. If you're not having fun, you're in the wrong place. Yes, it's hard work, but my gosh, the companies, the brands, the flavors, the experiences, the missions, it's fantastic. But some of the brands are different, better, and special. They're the ones who are able to really compete and vie for customer loyalty. Look, I know you want to make your brand different, better, and special. I know you yourself want to be different, better, and special. That's my mission. That's why you're here. Join me on this journey as I interview CEOs and founders from all the different companies within the food and beverage industry so we can discover what they're doing, so we can take that information back, digest it, and become better ourselves and to help our companies take on different strategies, pick the right technology, pick the right partners. And of course, you got to have great tasting food. You got to have great tasting beverages, packaged goods. If it doesn't taste good, you're lost. I'm sorry. You're going to lose millions. If you're new here, take the five episode challenge. Go back, pick out some brands and CEOs, some topics. If you love the content, subscribe. You're going to find it on every podcast platform once or twice a week. But I also publish them on LinkedIn because that's where we kind of hang out. So when you see it on LinkedIn, stop by, make a comment, share it back into your food and beverage network. I would appreciate it. The brands would appreciate it. To all my loyal listeners, thank you so much. You guys are awesome. Thank you for being with me on this journey. Thanks for coming along on this mission for the past two years. If you are considering a strategic job change, message me. Let's have a confidential conversation. If your brand is growing and you need to attract experts, you also need to contact me because I have created a different, better, and special recruiting system. I promise you, no other search firm in America is doing that. Who am I? I'm Tony Moore. I'm an expert food and beverage headhunter, semi-professional podcaster, and I'm here each and every week Stay tuned for this week's episode. Welcome to Winning at Work. Many of you guys know that I went through a move recently. We ended up selling our home. We were in Atlanta for, well, I'm an Atlanta native. I'm actually a fourth generation Atlanta and I go way back. And uh, when my family was young, we moved up to Alpharetta, a real popular place. It became more popular. Everything in Atlanta just keeps expanding north. And we moved, and we're now up in a, a little western town in North Carolina. And what's happened up here is I have discovered a incredible need for meal kits <laughs> because there are literally, I think there is maybe three restaurants total. And in these small towns, the starting hours and the days that they're open, it's just kind of whenever they want. You know, you might think we're going to go out and, oh, they're closed today. Okay, well, I figured they would have been open on a Wednesday night or whatever. <laughs> so we've um, we've really embraced the whole meal kit world. And lo and behold, Mike Wargaki, Senior Vice President in Operation Sunbasket, one of the largest meal kit companies out there, he and I were talking, we had some interesting conversations and I said, you know, Mike, I'd like you to come down and let's talk about this meal kit industry. So thank you for carving time out of an incredibly complex 
<laughs> operation that you're running to share with the rest of us in the food and beverage world what it's like to uh, be in the uh, being in the industry. No, th- th- thanks for having me, Tony. I'm excited to talk about uh, the world of the meal kit and food manufacturing. So. Yeah, I think if I was working in that industry, I think I probably would have probably have lost even more hair than I have. <laughs> um, when you were telling me about the uh, complexity of of just how many moving pieces and parts, but before we really jump into to some basket, I I want to I just want to call something out because it's I find it fascinating. So you're an assistant scoutmaster, or is that are you still with the Boy Scouts? I am. I am. I'm an assistant scoutmaster for my son's troop, and I'm the scoutmaster for my daughter's troop. <laughs> so, oh, <laughs> double duty. Yeah, I can't get enough of it. <laughs> so, uh, were you a scout when you grew up? I was. I, I, I grew up in Colorado and spent my time out there uh, camping in the woods and got my eagle and all that fun stuff. So, oh, you got your eagle. Yeah. So, yeah. So, well, for those uh-huh. who have no idea what we're talking about, you should. Boy Scouts was a, a great place for so many young kids to grow up and kind of learn the outdoors and get their merit badges. Uh, Eagle is the highest rank that you can achieve in scouting. I did not achieve Eagle. I was working on life. Life is the the level just below. Um, that's where I left off when I eventually moved um, due to some family things. And I never picked it back up when I moved. I was in Savannah at the time and I moved yeah. back to Atlanta when I moved back. Yeah, I, I I didn't think I didn't I left my troop. I didn't I didn't keep it going. So mm-hmm. question, um, did you ever go to Philmont? I did. I got to go to Philmont as a uh, young man and it was uh, an amazing experience. My uh, our troop is uh, voting on whether or not they're going to try to get in the lottery to go there in a few years. So Oh, there's a lottery a, now. Yeah, it's a lottery. So but yeah, northern New Mexico is just a crazy cool place to hang out. So, so for those who um, are kind of, again, still wondering what this is, there's a um, a scouting ranch out in New Mexico called Philmont is Philmont Scout Ranch. And it's rural. It's high country. It's load up your backpack with dry goods and head off for a month. Mm-hmm. And you just aren't going to the only thing you're going to see is maybe a ranger and maybe a bear. <laughs> yep, definitely. And yeah. uh, a chance to hike uh, Cimarron and some of the other, uh, you know, mountains out there. I went as a kid. I love it. I still talk about it today. Mm-hmm. My family's like, yes, Tony, we know you went and we're going to hear your bear story again. Because <laughs> no, we did encounter a bear. Oh, good. Lucky you. <laughs> yeah, literally. We were the cool kids that thought we could pack and hike away from the rest of the troop because we were cool. We weren't going to pack with, you know, set up our tent with everyone else. So we go a little further off in the woods and it's around dust time and we're all around the big fire. We look out and there is a bear inspecting our tent. Mm -hmm. Literally went halfway in our tent. (laughs) And that started the bear experience that we had for the next several hours. I'll never forget it. So it doesn't always pay to be cool. No, no. As a kid uh, doing backpacking in Colorado, we had to worry about grizzlies and hanging our food away from our tents and everything like that. Now, uh, now when we do our backpacking here in the Sierras in California, it's black bears. So a little less uh, scary than the grizzlies, but uh, they're everywhere in the in the Sierras. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. We, we've seen them. We saw them last year. We didn't see them on this year's 50 miler, but last year's 50 miler through uh, Yosemite. We saw saw a couple our first night and, and some our last night. So. 
It's an, it's an experience. And mm-hmm. yeah, you definitely have to get that food up and away <laughs> from, from the bears because their sense of smell is pretty, pretty mm-hmm. strong. Oh yeah. Um, well, this is not the scouting podcast, so let's <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's transition into Sunbasket. Tell us just in general, what what is Sunbasket? What is your kind of target market? Who are you focused on? And tell us anything else, you know, maybe about the mission. I see you guys have several other, mm-hmm. you know, causes that, that you're part of. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Sunbasket is, you know, one of the the players in the meal kit space, but uh, where we've sort of carved out our niche is more along the lines of, you know, healthy meals. So not as many uh, like cheeseburgers and hot dogs and things like that as you might find on some of the other platforms. Uh, a lot more healthy, a lot more meal plan specific. So things that are we uh, specific to gluten free or you're in, uh, you know, carb conscious or Mediterranean or you know, different types of diets, um, really where we try to focus. So it gives people a chance to really find something that fits within them, vegetarian, vegan. Um, and then our real sort of a center of the plate for us is really along the organic lines. And we've been, uh, you know, purveyors of the organic produce since the beginning of our, uh, our mission and really trying to get that out there and show the health effects of organic foods for people, uh, and get that out there. You know, the, the challenge of organic, uh, you know, being healthy versus being pretty and trying to explain that with the customers and uh, all those kind of fun what things. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, so there's a there's a perception that pretty food is healthy food. Um, and in the meal kit space, you know, you're, you're picking the cucumber, the bell pepper, the, you know, whatever the, the, the item is, the tomato, and you're sending it to someone. And what you may think is a pretty piece of produce or is the produce that you would buy isn't necessarily what that person would have chosen when they were at the grocery store. So trying to figure out how to balance that out and give them something that is good and wholesome, but maybe isn't exactly, you know, it isn't always going to be pretty, but is going to be healthy and is going to be good for you type thing. You know, I, I, I could just imagine this marketing campaign of taking a red, shiny apple Mm-hmm. coated in wax mm-hmm. <laughs> and putting that up next to an organic apple that's got mm-hmm. like spots and different colors on it. Mm-hmm. And it's like true or false. The bright red shiny apple is the healthiest choice, you mm-hmm. know? And I think people need to go through that whole new re-education. There's a farmer's market that we go mm-hmm. to. Uh, well, we used to go to in Atlanta and literally that's what the apple farmers had to do. Mm-hmm. They had, they were literally, you could hear them just educating people all the time. And eventually the people up there figured it out. Oh yeah. No, I mean, that's one of the things that's really fascinating from a you know mission perspective, as far as reducing food waste and, you know, helping get food in front of people in a meal kit space. You know, we're depending on, you know, who measures it and how it's measured out. You know, we're saving 30 to 40% of the food waste that you get versus a grocery store. So, yes, we have a lot of packaging and there's, you know, things like that that comes in because from an FDA guidelines perspective, you need to have everything labeled and packaged individually, especially in organic. Um, But at a grocery store, they have to keep the shelves full. So they put apples out in the uh, in the apple thing, even at Whole Foods. And if they only have four or five apples left, no one will grab apples. So they always have to keep the entire display case full of as many of those uh, apples or bananas or whatever it is 
so that people feel like, oh, what's left? It's not like the leftover produce that no one wanted. So they end up keeping that out there. And because they have to stock, stock it and the temperatures aren't perfect when you're out on the actual display floor, you end up throwing away a lot of food. Whereas in our world, we can keep it at the right temperature and get it right to you and uh, save a lot of waste that way. So. Yeah, that's a there's a big growing movement there in the reuse, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a it's it's definitely uh, it definitely needs to happen because there's a lot of energy and resources being used to produce food mm-hmm. that doesn't fit the consumer concept of this is what I want to buy. And that's um, that's just going to take some time. Absolutely. Well, maybe we'll get into some of your uh, missions at the end, because I know you mm-hmm. guys have some donation partners, you know, Second Harvest Food Bank, uh, uh, Farmers Against Hunger, Hope Food Pantry. I think it's important to know that or for people to know that, you know, a lot of the companies out there, it's not just about, you know, doing good, but it's also helping others that are in need. So Mm -hmm. it's nice to find another company that, you know, that's that's living those values. Um, All right. Take us into your world as Senior Vice President of Operations. My head was exploding when you were t- telling me a little bit about this. So, <laughs> well, I think what did you say to me? You were like, "Listen, let's talk about how do you scale a perishable food business from you know conceptually, you know, like a farmers market, a booth mm-hmm. to serving every zip code in America." Yeah, and I was like, no, "How in the world would you do that?" <laughs> Well, uh, with a lot of amazing team members who put in a lot of hard work, it's how it happens. But, you know, I mean, you, you go from a world of having an incredible executive chef, uh, our, our founder, one of our founders, Justine Kelly, um, was one of the, you know, preeminent, you know, people in the farm to table market here in California, in San Francisco. So she ran a restaurant called The Slanted Door, where she was their head chef and going into the farmer's market every day and choosing choosing what was on the farmer's market to drive what was on her menu. So it wasn't a fixed menu. They get their customer favorites, those kind of things. But um, so they really sort of took that concept into our world. But I mean, they started out, you know, chefs hand cutting the steaks and free, you know, vacuum sealing them in a box, tying a little sprig of, you know, rosemary and sage on the top of the box as they send it to the customers and doing, you know, you know, four or five boxes a week for investors and going into people and, I think their their fun story, uh, you know, when we just when we were getting ready to move into our first real building, is they did a hundred boxes in a week, and then they had to take the next week off because everybody was so exhausted <laughs> from doing this. So and now 100 we do hundred boxes in a week. So that is like the true origin. I, you know, I was really mm-hmm. curious to hear, and I'm glad you brought up the origin story because mm-hmm. I was really trying to imagine just what kind of financial investment do you have to make. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sure if that was even going to come up in this conversation, but maybe you could. Sh- yeah. Do you have any information around that? Yeah, I mean, we had a we, we've got a, an amazing uh, you know sort of a group of founders uh, you know led by Adam Zabar, who is our uh, our CEO, and uh, Tyler McNiven, who uh, he was the uh, part of the San Francisco Hippies that won I think season one or season two of the Amazing Race, and he turned part I of love his that show. <laughs> it's a great show. So yeah, he was one of the first winners of that show. Um, so Tyler and, uh, Justine and Adam got together and they, uh, you know, came up with the idea. Um, Tyler's a restaurateur, his family has been in restaurants and that's where he, he grew up. So he was uh, playing and it went from Tyler's, uh, garage to a little building outside the San Francisco airport that was 
a terrifying, scary place to, to, you know, produce food. Uh, not, not at all, even uh, remotely uh, someplace you could scale and enter in a world where the FDA is looking at you and things. Um, and uh, then we moved into a facility in San Jose, California in 2015, um, 50,000 square foot facility that used to be a, uh, used to be a fish and chips place. Uh, and then uh, we turned it into a, a meal kit facility. Uh, and then we outgrew that and uh, moved into a new facility in uh, Morgan Hill, California in uh, 2019. Um, at the same time, we had also built a 200,000 square foot facility in New Jersey. So, <laughs> uh, well, you have scaled. Okay. So we're definitely <laughs> talking to the right guy. So you, so walk us through, let's start just conceptually, right? As you look at ops, mm-hmm. what are the big bucket areas that you look at? that kind of keep you up at night Sure. when you think about, you know, automating and trying to scale and keep everyone safe because this mm-hmm. is a perishable food. Absolutely. Um, no, I mean, so the, the key here is we aren't a normal manufacturing entity where I have four or five different products that I run and I'm going to go long, you know, long turns and things like that. If I've got 500, if I've got 5,000 of something, you know, the team's super excited because that, that, that's a massively long run for us uh, because we change the menu every week. So there's around 50 items on our, uh, you know, meals on our, me- our menu each week. Um, and every week those all change. And, you know, some of the things like on the meal kit side, they don't show up again for another quarter for the fresh and ready or our pre-prepared meals. They may show up, you know, three or four weeks from now but everything's fresh food. So that means there's no, there's no holdover. There's no long runs and, and sticking with it. So there's nothing on the uh, inventory shelf. It's, it's a start it over. Okay. So exactly. Just expand that mm-hmm. out for a minute. Yeah. Cause you just kind of gloss over that 50 items each week. Okay. Mm-hmm. But what are we really talking about? How many, how many boxes, how many meals, how many ingredients kind of extrapolate that mm-hmm. out in terms of complexity? Well, I like to I sort of have like a, a general analogy that I've used for it. You know, so a 30,000 box week is a pretty typical week for one of our facilities. Um, and in that 30,000 boxes, they're going to be, you know, just over three meals per box, you know, somewhere between three and four meals per box. So you can round that out to there's about 100,000 meals that we produce. Those 100,000 meals are feeding, you know, 200,000 people out of, uh, a, you know, or a little bit more depending on how how healthy, uh, or how, how many extra people are nibbling at the meal. Um, but those hundred thousand meals each have somewhere around 10 ingredients in each of in, in them that, uh, make up the meal. So right there, you've gone from, you know, 30,000 boxes to a million different preps that we have to do. And, you know, we start our, our pack cycle on Fridays. We finish on a Monday, uh, Monday or Tuesday morning. So by the time we hit, Tuesday morning, we're already starting the next million and getting ready and getting that all the fresh ingredients in so that by Friday, we're ready to start shipping again. <laughs> totally I new think, things. You know what I think we need to do one of these times? We need to do like a, I've never done this before, but it'd be kind of fun if we did a, um, like a live stream video. We could, you could put like mm-hmm. a, a helmet cam on and I just would love to see sure. just the organized chaos of a million mm-hmm. Uh, a million items being prepped. Yeah. No, and, it, it, and that's exactly what it is. It is organized chaos. It, I, I liken it to a symphony 
where there's just, you know, if you break into each individual portion out, um, you know, there's a lot going on. And when they all combine together, you get this amazing, amazing sound. But, you know, if one gets a little off, you know, the timpani's a little off uh, from the uh, from the violin, suddenly it, it, it looks like a disaster. So, you know, each each little group is running and they're each group has their own uh, their own function, their own you know pace at which they're trying to get things done. And, you know, their internal customer that they're trying to be prepared so that the customer has everything they need before they have to start their job. So, so and like I said, we're, you know, we use meal kits and mm-hmm. we've tried some different ones. And I honestly, I am looking forward to trying Sunbasket, you know, mm-hmm. in, in full transparency. I've, I've not tried it before. Sure. Uh, so I, I am going to, because I, I like a lot of the things that I'm, I'm seeing, but you know, when the box comes, it can't miss anything. I mean, mm-hmm. There's only, like you say, only 10 ingredients. And yep. if that means you can't miss one of the ingredients, I mean, it's no. got to be there for the meal to be complete. You can't, there's no substitute really for uh, the special sauce that you're adding to the protein, mm-hmm. right? There, the customer is not going to have that. So how do you guys blend, you know, you know, automation on the line versus the human desire to check to make sure the QA. Sure. No, I mean, so when we started, you had literally, we had QAs looking at every single box. And, you know, when we were doing hundred boxes a week, you could break each box open, look at the work order for it, which was written out on a piece of paper at that point. And you could check each individual box before you shipped it out to customers. But as you scale, obviously the ability to do so slides away very quickly. Uh, so we moved from there to, you know, everything on the lines were all, it was all manually picked uh, as far as the final fulfillment, but we had you know, numbers and we had letters assigned to each, uh, each meal. And, you know, so each meal, there was 18 meals on the menu at that point. And they were like, you know, instead of having it, you know, whatever the, the ERP number was for the item, we call it yeah, meal number three, you know, and then you're trying to pick number threes and, you know, what, whatever was the simplest way for people to see and be able to make a decision quickly without having to think, um, and then eventually we moved into what's the world of uh, what they call pick to light. So you get to a point where there's so much. Wait, say so that word choice. again. Pick, what's it called? Pick, pick to light. So you have a you have a picking system and you're picking that because the light is uh, is activated on a line. Oh, so pick to light. Yeah. So what you do is you have uh, we have two different types of systems. Uh, you know, basically a box is going down a conveyor belt and it goes by a scanner and that scanner knows, you know, there's a QR code on the box and it tells you what is in that order. It's the, you know, the license plate, the, uh, the, uh, master document for that order. And based on what's in that, it gets routed into a zone where there's, you know, between 30 and 70 different items in front of a picker. And when they scan that box, lights show up in that, you know, below those different items and with the quantities they need to grab. So they need to grab three, uh, three salmon fillets. They grab the three salmon fillets, they acknowledge the light, they put them in the box, tells them, oh, wait, now you need to grab two, you know, burger patties, grab two burger patties, push the, acknowledge the light and you push the box back on and it goes to the next room or to the next, next piece of the puzzle. I'm so so glad you walked me through that because I was really trying to just imagine what it would have been like in there. So it's literally a combination of Mm -hmm. technology, routing, but then Mm -hmm. you have that human touch of verifying, putting everything in, manually checking, saying, yes, done, done, done. Yep. And then it goes to the next. Exactly. 
And then, you know, and so that's, you know, we have control over that. I, I can't control if uh, one of our, you know, major carriers, their truck gets hit and falls over and, you know, the boxes are all delayed or damaged or things like that. Um, I can't even control necessarily what the produce is going to look like on arrival at a customer. I can make sure that it's clean and it looks great when we put it in the box, but things, things can change. Things can get beat up a little bit those kind of things in transit, but I can control whether or not I put the wrong thing in the box or I put miss something in the box. So that's really where our, our pack fulfillment teams, that's where they focus. So, you know, on that, you know, hundred thousand meals that they put out each week, you know, nationally we'll, we'll you know, we'll have, you know, 55 to 70 wrong things that go into the boxes or missing things. You know, it used to be a couple thousand, two to 3,000 that we were missing each week. But the light system and the, the process there and, you know, how you train people on it uh, has really dropped that down. Well, so. you've answered one of the big questions I had then about automation. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that definitely helps. Um, I think we're witnessing now the complexity in a world of variety. So now you're faced with, Mm-hmm. You have to then load into the, all those new stations, all mm-hmm. the new items that have to be picked for that week. Yep. Now, is that automated or is that also a manual? It, it's a combination. Um, the The physical loading of the lines and the setup of the lines is all still manual, manual process. Um, now we have what we've done is we've got an amazing engineering group that's built a you know, an algorithm system that takes this week's orders, looks at what the highest take rate items are, and basically builds uh, the builds what the ideal layout will look like on the line. So it puts it puts the highest take rate things in the center of the the pick zone for the employee, so that they they have the best chance of seeing it and making sure that it's there. Um, but you know, still there's some things where you get you know item numbers are similar to each other, and on the put side, so on the replenishment side. You can't have like a B104 and a B105 next to each other because you just know at some point in the week, someone's going to put one in the wrong slot. And then suddenly you put that in the wrong slot. The front person, front side of the line is just picking it a light. They don't, they don't know. They're not analyzing it. Yeah. So they'll, then all of the items that are in that crate will go out as the wrong item to the customer. Um, the person did their job correctly on the front side of the line, but, you know, because we did that to them on the back. So, yep, on the back so there's side. a manual manipulation and things that we have to, you know, revisit the computer's decisions and make sure that it's, it's correct. But um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of manual still involved in that. <laughs> well, it sounds like, you know, the evolution from, you know, 10 boxes a week to a hundred boxes a week was just more manual labor. Mm-hmm. And then as you began to scale, yeah. You have implemented a little more of uh, technology and mm-hmm. routing in this in this type of system. Mm-hmm. Um, how has uh, regulation changed or compliance with the FDA? You're laughing mm-hmm. for those of you. We, we have video on, but we're not recording. Uh, <laughs> the words the words FDA and USDA um, mm-hmm. explain how that. Uh, relationship has changed as you have scaled? Well, it's the meal kit industry is still something that the FDA is trying to figure out what and how they want to handle it. So uh, from a technical perspective, we are in a direct to consumer world. 
So we are selling things, you know, directly to your door. So I am not like if I if I go to, uh, you know, say I'm going to the grocery store, I'm going to a Safeway or whatever grocery store is out there. Uh, If you go buy a package of, you know, lunch meat or a package of, you know, uh, hot dogs or anything like that from the deli uh, from, you know, one of the aisles, there's a USDA label. There's a uh, there's a certification on that on watching it. But if you go to the deli counter and you ask for a, you know, uh, sliced up, you know, boar's head ham, whatever it is that you're looking for that day, um, you don't have a USDA sticker on that because the deli has handed that to you directly. So you are the their end customer is an individual as opposed to a, you know, anybody could get it. So the meal kit industry sort of falls underneath that. They call it the retail exemption as do any, any of these direct to consumer foods things. So you've got this interesting world where you've got obviously local health inspection, you've got local health authorities, uh, local food, uh, food inspection authorities and the FDA, but then USDA isn't involved unless I'm selling stuff to another company as opposed to directly to an individual. So the, the FDA is still trying to figure out how they want to handle us. Um, and what, what they want to oversight. Well, if you're listening, I would say don't handle them at all. <laughs> well, <laughs> the less regulation, the better, because that's just my personal opinion, because mm-hmm. companies want to make consumers mm-hmm. happy. Yes, I, I agree. And I mean, if, if, if you are not making them happy, if they don't like the quality, they are not going to buy your food. Exactly. Yeah. The I mean, regulation if- truly is built in. Mm hmm. It is. If, if you get people sick, your industry is in trouble. You're done. So you you have to you have to do things to make sure people don't get sick and that you're doing everything in the best way you possibly can. Um, and that's really that's really the, the biggest challenge that I see in our space is there's a, there's a million little guys and, you know, mom and pop shops that are showing up in doing the meal prep, doing the meal kits every week. And that scale from doing it at a farmer's market where I'm producing it that morning and I hand it off to customers that afternoon to I'm now shipping to every zip code in the country. And how do I do that safely is the big, the big piece that our industry needs to make sure we do correctly. Uh, And, you know, you add in now the fact that we're putting it on a truck that goes on a UPS or FedEx or one of the carriers that isn't a refrigerated truck necessarily. Nope. Um, you know, we have ways to manage that, but the general, you know, Amazon, everybody's delivery system is a ambient, uh, you know, room temperature truck. Um, so how do I control everything in that box when I'm basically building its own little ecosystem? I mean, to- they're working well. I got to say, if you've never had a meal kit, they're pretty cool. You've got the cardboard box on the outside and you've got that insulated layer on the inside, which seals up pretty nicely. And oh, yeah. typically the proteins are put on the bottom. Mm-hmm. With the freezer packs of some sort, a gel yep. pack, and then the the other, you know, perishables, you know, kind of float, if you will, on top. Is that the general? Yeah, it's definitely you, you go, you've got different layers in the box based on temperature controls and what the maximum temperature that any of that food can see, as well as things like, you know, if I, if I keep uh, lettuce at 30 degrees all the way through a transit perspective, it shows up and yes, it's safe for you, but it's junk because it's just, 
it's been frozen. It's wilted. It looks disgusting. It truly is the worst looking piece of produce on the yeah. planet. Exactly. And, and that was so, yes, it's safe, but it's not edible in a way. Um, so there's the, trying to find that balance between the meals. And then in our world, we have both the kits, which are just ingredients to be cooked and prepared, as well as the fully prepared meals that are ready to be cooked, but everything's sitting there in the tray. So then everything in that has to stay under 40 degrees. It has to stay refrigerated all the way there like the proteins do. But you've got that next to a kit. So there's the uh, there's a fun uh, level of science and testing that we do to make sure that we're, we're finding that balance so it's safe, but it also is a, a good customer experience. Are you shipping things to yourself? Let's try this. Mm-hmm. I, I get did, a box I, every week. You, yeah, I was going to say, right? You <laughs> ship stuff to yourself to check it out. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know what I would love to see? And I mm-hmm. was just talking to um, Thaddeus Thorne. He's in uh, he's in food service, but we he was in plant based, and we've mm-hmm. we've had other conversations just about the industry in general, and this the, you're, you guys are doing a great job with reducing food waste, mm-hmm. but the problem that many of us you know we're all dealing with is just the the, the packaging, mm-hmm. and the question always is when are we going to become a little more sustainable? And of course, the answer is when it becomes more economically feasible. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to see a time when, you know, a box shows up, you take everything out and then you put your box back outside. Yep. And then next week when your new box comes, they give you the box and they take back the old one. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be fantastic to see this. But it, It it seems like it's just a pipe dream right now. You know, it's actually it's a lot closer than you'd think. Um, so like in our world, our, our answer for that has been so far that everything that we put in the box, every piece of insulation, every piece of packaging material has to be recyclable, compostable, reusable. Um, so now that adds new layers of complexity to me for, I can't just put a styrofoam box in there. Great, great insulator, terrible layer, but you know, <laughs> yeah, people exactly. put up the cross like, no, no more styrofoam. Yes. You know, so, so there's, there's things that we've done so far to handle that, but no, we're actually, we're in trials where we're working with uh, two or three companies, one, uh, one out of uh, Brooklyn and New York city and another one out of San Francisco that that's exactly what they do. It's sort of the old milkman model. So they have, they have the, yeah, they have the insulated bags. It's specific for those customers. Um, You know, even down to the point they've got ones that are working out right now where they even all the containers in which we would put our sauces and the different ingredients are all reusable things. Now, the challenge there becomes everything has to go out, has to get washed, has to get sanitized, has to come back. The box and the insulation is a little different because it's secondary packaging. It's not touching the food. So it's got that's where it's going to start first. Um, So. Oh, right. Gotcha. So secondary packaging. So what would. So what falls under the category of secondary packaging, like the box, the box, the ice, the insulation, those things. Um, yeah. Well, that's a big print. start. I mean, cause that's, it the, is. that's like the bulk of it anyway, really. Oh, absolutely. And and that, that's where, so, you know, the biggest challenge you get into now is just, you know, density of customers in an area to justify the return trip. Cause you got to be able to, you know, now you've taken a heavy box and shipped it to somebody and I'm taking an empty box back. So, you know, you have to either find a way to be able to break down the old box or the bag or whatever it is so that you can use a lot less space. So you can put a lot more in the return trip or, you know, you have to have enough customers in a specific zip code to uh, 
have that truck make its make that return trip. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's the reuse economy, and that's what mm-hmm. we've we've talked about. I'm I'm glad you you're looking into it. It's nice mm-hmm. to know that there is you know thought leadership that's going to work on the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, how how far away do you think something like this is? A couple of years. I mean, they're starting to do it. Even, you know, a lot of the large healthcare companies have started to do this with special insulation and bags for uh, medicines when they have medicines that need to be refrigerated on the way to people, uh, things like that. So they've started having these return services. You know, they started by going to hospitals, they didn't go into medical clinics, and now they're going to people's doors with these things. Uh, I think as our space continues to grow, and as more and more pressure is put on the control of temperature and understanding the temperature, um, the options are either to go this path and get to a you know return path on the on the the materials there, or there's going to be you know finding someone who steps into the world of wanting to be a refrigerated carrier and wants to take stuff to the door, refrigerated all you know from from door to door as a refrigerated uh, entity, at which point then you can get rid of the insulation. You can get rid of the ice potentially on that box or go to a very minimal version that just needs to cover while it's sitting on your doorstep, uh, which then reduces the footprint of that packaging material. So, yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see kind of where we end up with this. I know there is a, an industry that's forming this, you know, service reuse industry. Could you talk about the, the problems of all the packaging has to come back, get washed, get sterilized, get reused, and it'd be nice if there was a an in-between company that mm-hmm. did all of that for you. So you you're just focused on uh the the light system of the pick light, pick light? Pick to light, yeah. Pick to light system. Mm-hmm. You're just focused on that. Mm-hmm. And then all the boxes are coming back in, but they've already been cleaned, sterilized, mm-hmm. and you know, you're you're not having to deal with that because that's not the business you're in. Mm-mm. You've no. got you've got enough complexity, so you really need that intermediary company, and probably it's going to require consumers to say, you know, I'd pay three dollars more. Mm-hmm. I'll yeah. pay seven dollars more because look, people, it's easy for people to put a a, a check mark like on mm-hmm. Facebook. Yeah, great. <laughs> you know, let's do this great thing and give it a thumbs up. But you haven't done anything. Yeah. You know, at some point you have to take your activism, you have to take your belief system, either you have to participate in it or you need to invest in it and pay money mm-hmm. for it. Right. It's not it's just not enough to say I support it. And why aren't you doing it? Do something about it. You know, yep. no, definitely. And, and I think there are there's certainly a percentage of the population that is willing to pay for. There is uh, a percentage, that, but it's that, probably that, a pretty option. small one right now. It, it is, unfortunately. And it's uh, and it's not, uh, you know concentrated enough that it's like one neighborhood that we could all go to and <laughs> do this. So, uh. Right. It's the one person, you know, one person mm-hmm. per neighborhood. That's just not going to cut it. Exactly. Um, well, before we go, tell us just again, tell us any kind of current trends. Just give us a, so, some of your thoughts about the industry, where it's going and what mm-hmm. we can maybe expect to see. Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, COVID probably accelerated the industry five to seven years. Um, you know, we, we, we were able to, to push 
people into adoption of food delivery and things that people that would not have gone to the internet to get things sent to their house. Uh, you know, Europe does this all the time. I mean, almost everybody just gets their groceries delivered from the, you know, in Europe and to that level. Um, U.S. the adoption rate was was slower. Um, COVID obviously changed that as you couldn't go anywhere. So, okay, here's an option. Um, so during that period, everybody in our space had massive, you know, growth and you know opportunities to show and to, to demonstrate our products to customers. Uh, so that, that you know, as weird as it is, that was a good point for our industry. Was a was a pandemic, right? But at the same point, now the world is opening back up. And it's almost the exact opposite where people are like, I am sick of eating at home. I want to go out. I want to get the, you know, if I'm going to spend similar money to going out to a, a you know, mid-level restaurant, I want to go out to that mid-level restaurant. I want to, I want to go experience that. I want to go hang out with my friends. Um, so we're trying to figure out how to, you know, meet that customer in the middle of that and, and where the, where that industry is going to end up with that for the customers. So. Well, you mentioned Medi- the Mediterranean diet, and I know mm-hmm. we're kind of running out of time here, but I, I was, I'm kind of curious. I keep hearing that that's a pretty good mm-hmm. uh, one to go with. It is. Yeah. So it's, it's just a really nice balanced meal plan. Um, you know, all, all these things, you know, dieting, dieting is what it is. If it worked, uh, people would stay with it. But it, the reason that you go on a bunch of different diets and that there's always a million different diets is because, you know, you're basically trying to do something that your body isn't wanting to have hand happen. So the Mediterranean meal plan is just a lifestyle of eating. Um, there's different ways like that. And, uh, it's, you know, no lower in uh, saturated fats. It's got a good balance of fibers and grains and it's just a, a you know, overall it's very bright flavors. I, I like it a lot. <laughs> so. Yeah. I think when I try this sun basket, I think I'm going to go with the Mediterranean cause I've heard mm-hmm. about that. And I do think I would like the flavors there. It does mm-hmm. sound like that. And you're right. It's gotta be a lifestyle. It's got to be a lifestyle. Um, Well, look, this has been a great uh, kind of flyby into the organized chaos that you live every day, Mike. Um, If people want to check out Sunbasket and maybe even, you know, connect with you, what's the best way for them to kind of get started and and give this a try? Yeah, I mean, well, we're we're on the web, sunbasket.com. Nice and easy for everyone. Uh, you can get into our webpage there. You can see all of our meal options with the the delivery, all the different types of food that we sell um, there, even our marketplace. Uh, and then, you know, if anybody wants to get a hold of me and talk uh, talk about this industry or uh, any of the other fun parts of the food, uh, I'm, you know, I'm available on LinkedIn. Uh, Mike Wargaki. There's only like 12 Wargakis in the U.S. and they're all my family. So it's oh not hard God. to find me. <laughs> so. Really? So Wargaki is really a unique. What, what's the what, what's the origin it is a uh, it's Polish, but it was uh, Americanized when my grandfather came over from uh, from Poland, uh, you know, in the early 1900s. So that was sort of the name that uh, he said his last name, and that's what the guy at Ellis Island wrote down, and that became his last name. So <laughs> better <laughs> so than that. It was back. different, but that's what it ended up as. Yeah, he, he was not going back to Poland. So. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Well. Mike, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. You're a great guy and you've got such, you've got the right demeanor to manage such chaos. I can see you have a very calming, mm-hmm. you know, we'll figure this out kind of style and presence. And I, I'm sure that's a, a, a blessing for your direct staff and then down into the organization because uh, let's face it, people 
people have choices where they work and they want to work in a culture where they feel, I don't know, it's right for them. And I, I could see, um, mm-hmm. I, I think I could see from your style, you probably develop a nice, a nice even kill culture. You don't need someone who's adding more f- uh, uh, fire alarms on top of an already, mm-hmm. you know, complex, you know, type of a business. Absolutely. No, it is. It's all about keeping it calm and keeping the team, uh, team focused on, uh, you know, the craziness in front of them, but uh, making them uh, not realize that that craziness is actually, uh, you know, we basically convince them that even though they're doing something different every day, it's actually just the same thing, just a different, different vegetable in there. (laughs) Exactly. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being here today on Winning at Work. Yeah, I appreciate it, Tony.